0: You turn in your Bible to Exodus 28. Exodus 28 and 29 are probably not the first chapters of the Bible you'll turn to for a morning devotion. And I have to admit that a week ago, uh, before I really got into the text, I was wondering, how am I going to preach on this? How am I going to focus on the priest? But as I dug into it and just had read these passages before many times, but taking the time to slowly pour over it, you just see. The the riches and and the beauty and and the the detail that God prescribed for his ancient peoples about how to worship and sacrifice. It's really quite remarkable, and I hope to bring some of that to light tonight. Uh, We conclude our series in Exodus tonight as we focus on the priesthood, on the, the men called by God to represent the people before God. And these were men who served a vital role throughout the Old Testament to communicate God's holiness, to lead God's people in worship. And of course, now we do not have priests. Uh, That role has been fulfilled in Christ, who is our high priest, and we will uh, cover that in more detail as uh, the associate pastors begin a series, a morning series on the book of Hebrews starting uh, the week after our missions conference. Uh, But Exodus has much to teach us, and we, we hope to gain insight into God's holiness his beauty, and his glory. Now, I'm not going to read these entire chapters. Um, I'm going to read portions, so please follow as I give you verse instructions. And I'm actually going to begin uh, here at the end of, verse, of chapter 27, uh, starting in verse 20. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil, what is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. And now chapter 28, verses 1 through 5. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they, make Aaron, that they make, may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that you shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priest. And they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen. Now skip over to the end of chapter 28. So read uh, verses 40 through 43. For Aaron's sons you shall make coats and sashes and caps. You shall make them for glory and beauty you shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him, and shall anoint them and ordain them and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh. They shall reach from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they go into the tent of meeting for, or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die." This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after him. And now skipping over most of chapter 29, which gets into the the consecration and the ordination of these priests, we we pick up at the end, uh, starting in verse 35, which helps to summarize and give an overview of uh, the priesthood and their ordination. Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons according to all that I have commanded you, through seven, days, uh, through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar. When you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it, and the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb he shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb he shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of hen of beaten oil, and a fourth of hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb he shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and his drink offering, as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord." It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I shall meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is God's word. I suppose that the vast majority of us, if we found ourselves in a situation in court, uh, would choose to have an attorney to represent you whether in, in your defense if you were charged or someone brought a suit against you, or perhaps uh, to make your case if you were filing a suit against another party. Very few of us have the skill or the expertise or even the emotional wherewithal to endure making arguments before a judge and a jury and a, another party. I suppose it's also the case that uh, for, for most of us when it comes to buying or selling a home, that we would choose to have a, a realtor to represent us, to make negotiations, to uh, iron out all the details of a contract with uh, your buyer or seller. Uh, it's such a significant investment of financial resources. Most of us want to enlist somebody we trust uh, who can represent us and our interest. We find in many areas of life that we need representation, whether it's government matters, legal matters, financial matters, and more. Well, it turns out, we also need representation before God, the most important of relationships in all of life. And we find in the Old Testament that the Levitical priesthood was God's method to to represent his people before him in the era era that preceded the coming of Christ. They teach us that self-service is not an option with God. There there is no do-it-yourself mediation with God, which rubs strongly against the spirit of our independent age. The priesthood informed God's people then and now that we have a dire condition in sin and need righteous representation with God. I want to approach this text with a number of questions. Uh, First, it's simply asking, who were the priests? Well, uh, God, in his wisdom, chose one tribe among 12, the tribe of Levi, from whom to anoint the priesthood. And they come but from three clans, the sons of Levi, known as the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Mirarites, as you study uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And uh, each of these clans were given distinct responsibilities regarding the tabernacle and uh, later on the temple, as well as the, the sacrifices to be made on a regular basis. And of course, reading the census material in the Pentateuch can be dry, can be a bit monotonous, but there's something really beautiful in it as you read the census and begin to understand that the Levitical priesthood was set up, was designated by God to serve as a substitute, that the Levitical priests were a substitute for the rest of Israel. All the firstborn males in Israel are replaced by the Levitical priesthood. See, God says that the firstborn belongs to him. They're his. It was in judgment on Egypt that God struck down the firstborn sons of Israel's captors. But rather than the firstborn sons of Israel serve as priests, God chose to dedicate the entire tribe of Levi to serve as a substitute for the other tribes. They were set apart to teach God's ways, to represent God's people, and to accept sacrifices and make atonement for sin. Now, this role is so important uh, that God, designated to deck out his priest in the proper attire in chapter 28, details the garments uh, that the priests were to wear. That these were holy garments intended to demonstrate God's glory and beauty, as we see in 28 uh, verse 2. And the description begins with the ephod, a, a, a garment that is that's like an apron. It was suspended over the shoulders with, with straps. It, it was kind of a, a workman's overalls uh, tied around the waist by a belt, but it was, it was decorative. It was, it was a thing of beauty. It was not intended for casual work or everyday work. It was only intended for the priest uh, in his work in the holy place. Now, it also details that on, on the shoulder straps of the ephod, there were two onyx stones upon which the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were to be engraved. And this is a beautiful picture, so we can imagine the, the priest, the high priest entering into the holy place uh, to do his work, to consecrate the altar, to make sacrifice, and upon his shoulders were the names of Israel, to represent that the priest is bearing the burden, bearing up the names to uh, represent before uh, the living God. They were being carried on the shoulders of, of the priest. The second garment uh, detailed here is the breast piece, which is noted for its four rows of three precious gemstones, each one of which represented one of Jacob's 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so once again, we find representation as God's people are represented on the breast piece all over the heart of the high priest as he entered into God's holy presence. The third garment indicated is a robe, a robe worn and decorated with pomegranates, a beautiful fruit that's uh, alternated with bells of gold. And the bells, we understand, were a kind of warning system, a warning system so that when the priest enters in God's presence, he doesn't come unannounced. And I tend to hold the view that this is in parallel with the practice of the ancient Near East when, when a servant uh, or uh, an emissary could, was, you don't know, just go barging into the presence of a monarch. You had to be announced. And this was a kind of warning system uh, as the priest comes into God's holy presence for him to be careful and to be reverent and to be respectful and careful about the work that he had undertaken. Now, lastly, upon the head of the high priest was placed a turban, upon which was a gold plate inscribed with the words, Holy to the Lord. This turban made of fine linen, linen which comes from flax fibers, which uh, was discovered in antiquity to uh, provide exceptional coolness and freshness, especially in a hot, humid climate. So the priests are outfitted in a way that they are decorative, they are representative, uh, that they are not weighed down with with, with heavy in, in heat-trapping uh, garments, but rather so, uh, something that's fitting to prevent sweating and prevent uh, uh, creating a mess as they carried out their very important work. Notice also that Aaron... Uh, Aaron and his sons were also given a coat, a sash, a cap, all intended for glory and beauty. The priests even wore a kind of linen undergarments as they entered into the tent of meeting, into uh, the holy place, lest they bear guilt and die. And so it's safe to say that that the high priest was the best-dressed man in Israel. That God cared about beauty. God cared about the the dignity of of his priest who was coming into his presence to represent uh, the people. And you also notice that the colors of the garments were the same colors as the the curtains of the tabernacle and later uh, the temple the the gold and the scarlet and the blue and the, the, the rich colors. Uh, that, that, that seemed to symbolize that the high priest is embodying the tabernacle. Uh, that he, just as the tabernacle was in motion throughout the wilderness, uh, so the high priest is in motion. He's carrying upon his person uh, the beauty and glory and the representation of God. Now, what are we to think of, of the priests? We don't have this office. They, they fill a distinct function. And you, know, you may very well know that ancient Israel was governed by, by three main offices, by prophet, priest, uh, and king, uh, where, where the prophets represent God uh, to the people, the priest represent the people to God, and the king's role is to enforce the law. And in, 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 in a way of a kind of a pseudo-broken analogy, you might, might think of kings as our executive branch. Perhaps you might think of the prophets as the legislative branch, the, the giver of law, and uh, the priests as the, the judiciary. Of course, that's a very imperfect analogy. It doesn't square well with our system of government. Uh, but just helps us understand, you know, what, what role did the priests serve uh, in ancient Israel and how is it applied today? Of course, we don't have priests. Uh, we believe that the office of priesthood uh, faded uh, with the end of the Old Covenant era. But we do in our church have pastors and elders who who serve a kind of priestly role. Uh, as pastors and teaching and ruling elders have a inter- have a responsibility to interpret God's word, to lead God's people in worship, uh, to administer the sacraments, and to shepherd God's people. All. Uh, parallel uh, roles that the priest did serve uh, to care for God's people in Old Testament Israel. Now we l- find ourselves living in a, in a, in a society that is, is wayward. And I think if you look, look around our society y- you see many people who are serving in a priest like role. Uh, there are many voices in our society uh, that um, are eager to tell us what is good what is right, whether it's in in a spiritual uh, matter or on material matters. And uh, there are many people uh, who who would like to uh, serve as priests, to to, to govern and rule and and judge us and determine uh, how the manners in which we ought to live. But uh, just as the Old Testament priests and New Testament ministers uh, must use God's Word as the basis for how we approach God, how we approach How are we to to govern ourselves? Uh, We have to be careful uh, with the many voices from entertainers and talk show hosts, radio personalities, and all the so-called experts of our day who are more than eager uh, to influence us with a a humanistic uh, and secular foundation to advocate for some new trend, some new morality or another cause to endorse. And so we need to be careful, we need to remind ourselves uh, that that all the messages we hear in our society today must be filtered, must be judged based upon God's word. We must train our hearts and minds uh, to identify the the strange doctrines prevalent in our day that do violence to the will of God. How we are to worship, how we are to view marriage, how we are to prioritize uh, our spending, our time, the rules for lifestyle are all governed by Scripture and not the spirit of our age. So I just find this interesting as we think about, uh, we, we live in a culture that is very eager to thwart the Word of God and influence us on a different foundation. So what did the priest do? Uh, there's a number of things, at least five or six things that we could highlight as we, as we look at the priest from chapter 28 and 29 and elsewhere. Uh, in the Pentateuch and beyond uh, throughout the Old Testament. Uh, but first and foremost, uh, the priests had a responsibility to take care of the tabernacle, uh, and later, uh, which became the temple. And uh, notice in the first verses I read from chapter 27 uh, that the priests had charge for making holy bread to set upon the table of showbread. Uh, so, in some measure, they were bakers. Uh, they also uh, took care of sacred objects. Uh, for the pouring of drink offerings, the sprinkling of sacrificial blood intended to the fire on the altar. Uh, There's a lot of detail throughout uh, the Pentateuch where uh, members of the Levitical orders would take down the poles and the curtains, uh, carry the tabernacle uh, furniture and apparatus, uh, including the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the mercy seat of God, and would follow where God led Moses and the people throughout the wilderness for 40 years before it came, uh, came to rest uh, later in, in Shiloh uh, in, uh, before uh, eventually being moved uh, to Jerusalem. Now, I love the, the end of chapter 27 uh, where God instructs Moses and the Levites to keep the lights burning in the golden lampstand. The, the golden lampstand being a, a symbol of light Shaped like a tree, it's a representation of the tree of life, and they would only use pure olive oil that was lightly beaten, as pure as could be, to avoid uh, making smoke as it burned throughout the night. And the the golden lampstand was God's nightlight, uh, the nightlight in the tabernacle to be preserved as it was attended to by a priest all throughout the night. And Psalm one thirty four makes reference. Uh, Out of this picture of the servants of the Lord standing by night in the house of the Lord. So we can just imagine, especially Israel during their wilderness wanderings, in the wilderness, in the middle of the night, to look towards the tabernacle, which was set, set in the center of the crowds of the tribes all around, just as a sign of hope, a reminder in the middle of the night that God was with them. A reminder that one of their representatives was in the tabernacle worshiping, praying, interceding on their behalf, giving uh, those anxious and worried a sense of peace and calm to return to their slumber. It's also a beautiful picture of our Lord Jesus, who now never ceases to make intercession for us. It's also a picture of heaven anticipating that we will worship forever in the presence of the Lord. Well, secondly, we see that the priest also represented God's holiness to the people. Uh, elsewhere in uh, Exodus, and Leviticus, uh, we, we find very strict requirements for service. It says things like, uh, no Levite who has a disability or a disease uh, was permitted to serve. Uh, the, the priests were not... Permitted to marry a foreigner, only a virgin of Israel or the widow of another priest. And on one great occasion, in a a demonstration of zeal for God's holiness, Phineas, the uh, grandson of Aaron, took a spear and ran it through an Israelite man who was fornicating with a Moabite woman. And this great act of zeal pleased the Lord, who proceeded to stop the plague on Israel and to establish uh, the line of the high priest through Phinehas' line. And we see another example of God's holiness, a tragic one, when two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, are struck down uh, for offering unauthorized fire on the altar, a a sign of God's judgment upon the presumptuous and a failure to follow his detailed instructions. The high priest had the most dangerous job in all of Israel. Perhaps similar today to a power line technician or the operator inside a nuclear power plant, the high priesthood was a matter of life and death. And we see a vivid picture of the serious nature of their work and the vision given in Zechariah chapter 3 Uh, It's a glorious vision of Joshua the high priest who is standing before God on his throne. Now, the high priest was only allowed to come into the Holy of Holies one day of of the year on the Day of Atonement. And not with the ephod and not with the breastpiece, but in, in in a mere pure white linen tunic. But rather than the prophet seeing Joshua the high priest in God's presence in a white tunic he's standing there in filthy rags and language indicates is covered with human excrement and to make matters worse Joshua is being accused and assaulted by Satan casting outrageous accusations against God's high priest Satan there serving the role as a prosecuting attorney of course Joshua is doomed he stands judged before a holy God. And so the Lord commands an angel to go to Joshua to take off his filthy rags and clothe him with righteous, pure white garments that he may stand before God, holy, righteous, and acceptable in his sight. And of course, the lesson here is that Joshua did nothing to save himself. As his name Means the Lord saves, a beautiful anticipation of the work of Christ, our great High Priest. Well, thirdly, we learned that the Levitical priest led the people of God in worship, performing sacrifices and cleansing rituals. We find elsewhere that they performed daily, weekly, monthly, and Uh, tri-annual feast sacrifices that involved livestock and flocks, members of the flock, the birds, uh, grains and oil. And uh, there's a lot of intricate details behind uh, the sacrifices that kept the priest busy year-round in order to make atonement for sin. And uh, a number of offerings are listed in our text, sin offerings, guilt offerings, peace offerings, wave offerings, burnt offerings, all that, that give a picture of of whole burnt offerings, of making sacrifice for sin, even the peace offerings or the people that the uh, priests were uh, allowed to eat, to consume themselves. And uh, there's a lot of detail that that, t- that required a lot of expertise. The priests had to be schooled men, had to really understand the law of Moses. Uh, but you, you see uh, uh, a key feature of their work in chapter 29, verse 10, When Moses instructs Aaron and his sons to lay their hands upon the head of a bull, a bull, the largest of the livestock, who would be the sacrifice for their sin, indicating that the priest, they had to have atonement for their sins first before they could make atonement for the people's sins. And when they lay their hands upon the head of the bull, it's a symbol of transference, that the sin of the man is laid upon the animal. So the animal serves as a sacrifice, a substitute for sinful men. Of course, the priest had to be clean, had to be set apart in order to prepare others for worship. Chapter 29 details the consecration, not only of the priest, but also the tabernacle furnishing. Uh, Furnishing is the blood of the bulls. The rams had to be dedicated before the Lord. Uh, Their garments had to be consecrated with the sprinkling of blood and oil. And, and finally, to, to fit, fit to be served, the, the priest had to be anointed with the blood of the ram on their right earlobe, their right thumb, their right foot, to, as a kind of symbolism of the ear hearing the word of God, moving in the strength of God and walking in the Lord's ways to serve as representatives of the people. But, you know, as you go through this, this list of the magnificence of their clothing and the, the consecration and the ordination of the priest, no matter how magnificent and beautiful they were, it could never hide the sin of their hearts. Every high priest was a sinner, uh, was unfit in and of himself to serve before uh, God. That the, in the sacrifices That he offered were neither perfect nor permanent. And so the priest had to keep returning day after day, month after month, year after year to make the atonement for not only his sins, but also the sins of the people. And of course, as you go throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, we see the failures of Aaron, who made a golden calf. We see the failures of his sons, who were burned in fire. We see the failures of Eli and his sons, who were wicked exposing repeatedly the need for a greater high priest. We even read in the, in the passages of judgment in Jeremiah and elsewhere that, that indict Israel and, and are uh, preparing uh, them for exile, explaining that a big part of God's judgment was based upon the corruption of the priesthood. The priesthood had become so corrupt, and it led the people astray so, uh, so deeply Uh, that they were fit for judgment and exile away from uh, the Holy Land. And so we recognize that as a people, we need a perfect high priest who is holy, who is glorious, who is beautiful. And so it is that God sent his son who would come as a prophet, who would serve as our great high priest as he took his priestly role on the cross, And even now as he reigns as king and as our priest forever, Jesus was a priest without sin who offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He wearing no beauty of his own as he went to the cross where he hung naked and ashamed, bearing the ugliness of sin and upon his shoulders he bore the weight of the sin and judgment of, of us all. Well, there's much more that could be said in these passages regarding the priest seeking God's will on the people's behalf, the, the Urim and the Thummim and uh, the, these dice-like uh, stones or gems that the high priest would use to help make major decisions regarding the welfare uh, of Israel and its future. But we're reminded uh, that, as we, that, that God's will for us is our sanctification, that the most important Information we have from Scripture is our salvation found in Jesus Christ. And we don't need tarot cards. We don't need psychics. We don't need a talisman to determine God's will. We're called to pursue the Lord, and we're called to study His Word and be a people of prayer to seek wise counsel in making our most important decisions of life. So what does the Levitical priesthood teach us? I would say in closing that they teach us that you cannot be your own priest. You, you cannot represent yourself before God. You, you can no more atone for yourself than you can be your own mother. You cannot birth yourself. You, you come from someone else. You belong to someone else. You belong to another. Secondly, you cannot define the rules of engagement With God, we do not write the rules. We do not write the script. It must be handed down to us. You can only imagine the chaos if kindergartners were entrusted with the task of writing up the rules for the classroom. Most of them can't even write yet. And so it is. We live in a society where people want to rewrite the rules of what it means to be righteous, what it means to be accepted, what it means to be moral. And good, and we live in a day and age where many, many people reject traditional religion, and especially the Christian church suspect of all religious authority, and some with warrant as we see the, the chaos in, among the Roman Catholic priesthood and the abuse on children and other travesties. but there 's you know, a deep, dark problem in our culture where many people call themselves spiritual, want to find their own spirituality, want to create their own system of karma. to to measure up to some standard of being good, to move on to something better, perhaps, after this life. And most people in our day and age fail to see the the inherent internal inconsistency of that, Uh, that that, that nobody can measure up even to their own standards. We we fail to uh, fulfill our New Year's resolutions within a few weeks. And so it is that we find ourselves in, in a very fatalistic society, where people more and more are inventing new ways, new ways to express how far we fall dreadfully short of God's righteousness. And many people will stand condemned on the judgment day when they fail to reckon with God's holiness, their sin, and their need for a righteous representative. Sadly, I think believers can do somewhat the same thing when we try to write our own rules when we fail to submit to God's Word, when we reject accountability of our brothers and sisters, when we really want to cut ourselves slack rather than humble ourselves and repent before God. We deny Christ by our own forms of penance. My wife grew up Roman Catholic, and she uh, remembers how, you know, there was something kind of satisfying going to the priest to confess your sins. There was something satisfying with the, the various uh, rites and rituals in uh, a sacerdotal system. But it's a false sense of security. Even among Protestants, we have our own versions of the way we try to negotiate God with God or seek acceptance on our own terms. But in truth, you and I cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. We read all these overwhelming and laborious Levitical laws, and sometimes I wonder, you know, from a non-believing perspective, it's like OCD. It's like this obsession with cleanliness, with all the rites and all the rituals. And it might might be very tempting, it might have been very tempting for ancient Israelites to be overly preoccupied with every jot and tittle, To make sure everything's clean, everything's right, everything's in order. And you can do all those things and have a heart that's not right before God. To to fail to see what these things point to. to. To fail to understand that these things point to the glory and the beauty and the holiness of God. And that is sadly where many Israelites ended up in the Old Testament era. When you end up with a corrupt priesthood, called the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin who railed against the Lord Jesus, who hated him with a murderous passion and only wanted to get rid of him, to make him the sacrifice for the nation to keep their uh, places of privilege and power in collusion with the Roman government. The Levitical priesthood shows us our great need for a high priest— the great need for one who would come, who would endure a Mac trial, who would be beaten and scourged on a Roman cross. You know, if you go driving through your neighborhood and you stop properly at the stop sign, and then you come to a stop and you proceed, you have obeyed the law. But of course, if you just race past the stop sign and the police officer Catches you and pulls you over and gives you a fine to pay $90. Once again, you have satisfied the requirements of the law. But before God, we fail to obey the law and we cannot pay the punishment uh, due to us, the penalty for breaking the law. But Jesus did both in our place. He both fulfilled the law and he paid the penalty the punishment that we uh, could never endure the penalty that we could not pay jesus is our great high priest who fulfilled the law where others fail short who welcomes the weak the lame the blind the backslidden the humble the one who sympathizes with us in our weakness as a merciful high priest where The Levites, the Levite and the priest and the Good Samaritan could not stop to touch a body beaten and torn by robbers. Jesus never made himself unclean by touching the dead or the sick. They became clean by his touch and healing miracles. What the Levites were forbidden to do, Jesus did by marrying an unfaithful woman, a church church who need to be rescued from herself and her sin. It's when Jesus went into God's presence, bearing us on his shoulders, us, his treasured gemstones over his heart, representing us, taking our sin, our folly, our shame, to be punished in our place upon a cross of judgment. And in exchange, you and I are clothed. We are clothed in the righteous White linen robes that we do not deserve, clothed in an ephod, a breastpiece, a robe, a turban, labeled across the top, holy to the Lord. We are God's treasured possession because Jesus went into the Lord's holy presence in our place. And even still, he lives forever to intercede in our behalf, our great high priest. More to come as we enter into a series on Hebrews in coming weeks. Yes, we need a a representative before a holy God, and we have a perfect representative who does not let us down, who does not oversell, who does not fail to keep his promises, but one who satisfies us, who establishes a good government, who satisfies all of our legal obligations, the one who pays our deep financial debt, the one who brings us into the presence of God as we read at the final part of our text so that we could dwell with God, so that God could dwell with us to be our God, that we might be his people forever and ever. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for this good news. We're grateful that you are our God, that we're your people, that you've given us righteousness representation through your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. We pray that in the week to come we would reflect well upon this glorious truth and that we would go forth as your kingdom of priests to represent you well before a watching world. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.